Last month's full-length episode titled Moons, Mooning, and The Moon was about just those things. And you know, after 90 minutes of talking, I hadn't even gotten into the details surrounding the invention of the telescope, and I debated as to whether or not to include the hour-long telescope section into last month's already hour-and-a-half-long show. Ultimately, I decided to make the telescope section its very own episode that was separate but related to the moon one. And if you haven't heard the moon one, you might want to go back and give it a listen before this one because some of the earliest discovered moons, not including ours, of course, were made by these early pioneers of astronomy and the telescope. And much like the invention of barbed wire that we discussed in episode two of Scattered Curiosities, Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians, many patents were filed around the same time for this same invention of the telescope, making its genuine inventor somewhat of a mystery. And in true Albert Einstein fashion, we are going to go back years before the 1609 invention of the telescope comes to the eyes of mankind. Scope this out. First thing to understand, astronomy is the study of the stars in the heavens. Astrology is your horoscope. Remember this because a lot of the early astronomers, who were the real scientists of their days, were also made to be astrologers to royalty and to help them make crazy important decisions that they believed to be written in the stars. So let's go way, 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 way back to 343 BCE, where a 40-year-old Greek philosopher, scientist, and man about town, Aristotle, is tutoring Alexander the Great in the study of physics, ethics, music, theater, poetry, biology, politics, language, government, and astronomy, just to name a few. Aristotle was a former student of Plato while he was living in Athens, which qualified him for the job of tutoring the future king in the eyes of Alexander's father, Philip II of Macedon. Being near all that wealth and power gave Aristotle access to people, places, documents, supplies, and assistance that he would not otherwise have had. And he used every single one of those resources to establish a killer library. Scattered curiosity, medieval Muslims referred to Aristotle as the first teacher. And as Alexander the Great's teacher, he was in charge of the Royal Academy in Macedon and tutored two other soon-to-be kings-in-waiting, Cassander and Ptolemy. Aristotle was not a huge fan of Persia, and he certainly prodded a young Alexander to conquer these barbarians as the leader to the Greeks. He even joined Alexander on some conquests before settling back in Athens in 335 BCE after a falling out with the conqueror, where he started his own school, the Lyceum, and taught for the next 12 years. This is the time that he did all of his observations and writings in physical science, astronomy, geography, psychology. I mean, the guy couldn't pick a major. He would have loved scattered curiosities. Because of the cornucopia of subjects that he was the authority of, he got a lot of things totally wrong. He said that men have more teeth than women in his book, History of Animals. And his theory that a heavier object falls faster than a light one is wrong too. But he did correctly say that, quote, the size of the sun is greater than that of the earth 
and the distance of the stars from the earth many times greater than that of the sun, which is huge for the time. Yet, he was still committed to a geocentric universe, as was most everyone until the 16th century. Author Ayn Rand called Aristotle, quote, the greatest philosopher in history. And she may well be right about that, but as a scientist and astronomer, he may have actually halted the progress of discovery for hundreds of years. But he did get some things right. He observed that nature can change, that deserts can suddenly become lush, and fertile lands can suddenly become a desert, and that the earth changes. And he was awesome with optics. In his composition, Problemata, he talks about using a camera obscura to observe the sun and saw that the more distance put between the hole and the surface he was observing, the image got bigger. Let's jump ahead to the ADs, to the year 130 AD, with Claudius Ptolemy, a Roman astronomer that was born in Alexandria, Egypt, but with Roman citizenship, which was a big deal back then. I mean, people would go off to war and fight for Rome just to be paid with Roman citizenship. And you might recall the name Ptolemy from Scattered Curiosities, episode 2.1. Ptolemy was the ruler who was referred to on the Rosetta Stone. This is not him. Ptolemy was a common name in Egypt starting 400 years earlier in 323 BCE with Ptolemy I, Soter. However, Persians in the first century would confuse the Ptolemy I'm talking about now with the other one, referring to him as Ptolemy the Wise after he wrote his book, Almagest, which is the only lasting, all-inclusive ancient commentary on astronomy. And he kept astronomical tables to predict past and future positions of the planets, which contained a star catalog. His ideas were also, erroneously, geocentric rather than heliocentric, and he made maps of the world that were incorrect because he miscalculated the size of the Earth. His figures, the Earth was too small. And yet, his writings, especially his book Tetrabiblios, was said to have, quote, enjoyed almost the authority of a Bible among astrological writers of a thousand years or more, end quote. But even with this renown, he asserted that astrology shouldn't control the way the people live their lives because the country of origin, race, and upbringing of a person was predominantly responsible for someone's personality and not the positions of the sun, moon, stars, and planets when they were born. In his book Harmonics, he wrote that music notes could be translated into math equations and also in the reverse which is called Pythagorean tuning because Pythagoras discovered it first. But Pythagoras thought that the ratio of math to music should be 3 to 2, and Ptolemy just spoke of octaves and tetrachords, which are four-note scales. And the Ptolemy's crater on our moon and Mars are named for him alongside asteroid number 4001. From the year 700 all the way up into the 13th century, the closest optics you might find to magnify things in a similar fashion to a telescope would be with reading stones, which were developed shortly after the discovery of making sand into glass. The same process would be applied to polishing stones of rock crystal or quartz, the second most plentiful mineral in Earth's crust after feldspar. The ancient Romans thought quartz was ice that was forever frozen after it had been in that state for a thousand years because it was found near the cold parts of the Alps and not near hot volcanoes. It was quickly realized that quartz can split the spectrum of light 
and it will play an integral part of the development of reflecting telescopes in about a thousand years. But until primitive spectacles came into the picture in the late 1200s, a reading stone was the best solution for the weak of eye. Another name you've heard a lot in this episode is that of the Renaissance-era Polish astronomer, translator, economist, diplomat, governor, and mathematician who devised a radical model of the universe that put the sun in the center and the earth moving around it in his book On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres, Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus was a lifelong bachelor that never married, but did have a live-in housekeeper named Anna Schilling for a mistress. He came from a wealthy family. And he studied everything. Spoke Polish, Greek, German, Italian, and Latin, which is not only the language amongst academics of the time, but also of the Roman Catholic Church. So, you will sometimes see his name Latinized. He was awesome at mathematical astronomy and well-read in the natural science and philosophical writings of Aristotle, who mentioned Pythagoras' theory of a moving earth and Ptolemy's geocentric theory of the structure of the universe, and Copernicus found contradictions within these two official theories of astronomy, especially while he was studying the lunar eclipse of November 5th, 1500. Now, Copernicus wasn't perfect either. He made incorrect observations of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and he believed in perfectly circular orbits. But cut the guy some slack. He didn't have a telescope. But instead, ancient primitive tools like the triquatrum, the quadrant, and the armillary sphere. He began work on revolutions in 1514, and over the next 15 years, he only shared a few copies of it with fellow astronomers who were also studying eclipses. Once he started to focus on the sun, he was really able to make sense of the Earth's motion in relation to the stars, and he made recommendations of changing the Julian calendar. He finished Revolutions in 1532, but didn't publish it for fear of prosecution or criticism from the church and the scientific community. It won't be published until 1542, and a popular story about Copernicus has him on his deathbed in 1543, and he's handed a copy of his book, and he wakes from his coma, looks at the book, smiles, and dies a happy man. His book Prussian Tables was published posthumously eight years later, and it contained astronomical tables which became the favored works of a handful of future European astronomers like Thomas Diggs, Thomas Harriet, Galileo Galilei, Johannes Kepler, and Isaac Newton, who furthered the studies and understanding of a heliocentric universe. Interestingly enough, the Catholic Church didn't speak out against his book until Galileo was on trial for preaching some of the same rhetoric some 70 years later. The Church said of Copernicus's writings, quote, His arguments have no force and can very easily be taken apart for it is stupid to contradict an opinion accepted by everyone for over a very long time for the strongest reasons. Unless the impugner uses more powerful and insoluble demonstrations and completely dissolves the opposed reasons. But he does not do this in the least. End quote. Or does he? Now, for the next hundred years or so, the stories of a lot of these men are going to start to interweave because the events take place relatively close to each other, and a lot of these guys knew one another, and many of the letters that they wrote still survive today. Leonard Diggs is the earliest person said to have invented the telescope by his son, Thomas, in his writing, Pantrometria, 
which describes how his father Leonard used a, quote, proportional glass to look at people and objects from far away sometime between the years 1540 and 1559, which does sound like a telescope, but there is no evidence to support this claim. In addition, during this time frame that's given, Leonard Diggs was participating in a failed Protestant rebellion against the marriage of Philip II of Spain and Queen Mary I, and he's found to be a traitor and sentenced to death. He's eventually pardoned four months later, but all of his assets were frozen and he faded into obscurity. In 1558, Elizabeth I becomes the Queen of England and keeps her astronomer, astrologer, and alchemist advisor, John Dee, close to her side. He starts to push for English colonization and is sometimes credited with coining the term the British Empire while he was trying to encourage Elizabeth to take over Ireland, build up the navy, and he claimed that King Arthur had conquered land in America forever ago, so it technically belonged to England. Scattered Curiosity, Iron Maiden's 2010 song, The Alchemist, is about John Dee. And he's also a character in William Harrison's 1840 novel, Guy Fawkes. And he's also a likely inspiration for Prospero in every astronomer's favorite Shakespeare play, The Tempest. And the prevailing theory of the day in the mid to late 1550s was that the universe consisted of the Milky Way and it contained all of the stars in the universe and that everything revolved around the Earth and that the stars were fixed and the heavens could not change. But then they did. In 1572, Thomas Diggs witnesses a supernova, the birth of a new star, and declares it to be located past the orbit of our moon and added that the universe was never-ending with an infinite amount of stars. And he was one of the first people to say this, despite having no solid proof of it. And five years later... Johannes Kepler witnesses the Great Comet of 1577 and is inspired to become an astronomer. The following year, William Bourne of Gravesand, an English mathematician and Royal Navy gunner who's designed an early type of submarine and taught sailors how to use the sun and stars to navigate using features on the coast from the ship by use of triangulation, writes his book, inventions, or devices, and his 110th entry describes an early version of the telescope. He talks about a device that's made of two glasses, which, when put in proper order, will enable you to read a letter from a quarter mile away or see a man four miles away. This, too, predates the patent for the telescope by 30 years. In 1580, Thomas Harriet graduates from Oxford and is hired by Sir Walter Raleigh to teach math, to help design ships, do accountant work, and help the Royal Navy with navigational issues. Harriet invents a language to communicate with two Native Americans from the Carolina Algonquin tribe who were brought to England and then he accompanied them back to America where he served as an interpreter and a scientific advisor. And Sir Walter Raleigh asked him to find a good way to stack cannonballs on the deck of a ship. And his illustrated solution of packing them close together has a striking resemblance to the structure of the atom well before its time. And during these expeditions, Harriet had been in correspondence with Johannes Kepler in regards to optics and was influential to Kepler's work. Back in England, Francis Bacon is calling for the execution of Queen Mary of Scots 
and invites Scotland and Ireland to unite with England, just as John Dee had suggested earlier. Meanwhile, Thomas Diggs is put on a commission to decide if England should switch to the Gregorian calendar that was also suggested by John D. years earlier. Shortly thereafter, Thomas Diggs goes off to fight Catholics in the Eighty Years' War in the Spanish Netherlands, and he will perish there. Quick scatter curiosity, Thomas Diggs's widow was eventually remarried to the overseer of William Shakespeare's will. I've mentioned our next genius a few times in this episode, the German astronomer and inspiration to Galileo Galilei and Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler. And he has an interesting take on the universe that tries to make a connection of a Copernican system and a physical and spiritual relationship with God. He believed in heliocentrism with the sun in the middle of the universe and that the universe itself was the image of God. The sun, S-U-N, is the father. The stellar sphere is the sun, S-O-N. And all the space in between is the Holy Spirit. His first writing on the matter, titled Mysterium, tries to prove his points with quotes from the Bible. And in 1600, he writes a groundbreaking letter to the Archduke Ferdinand of Austria in Latin, which translates to, quote, There is a force in the earth which causes the moon to move, end quote. And even though he has been working to include God in his design of the universe, he and his family refuse to convert to Catholicism at the request of the Holy Roman Empire. And his father even died fighting in the Eighty Years' War, which, as I've mentioned several times today, is widely covered in episode one of Scattered Curiosities, Let's Go Dutch. Hey, I don't have any sponsors, folks. Somebody's got to promote this thing. Now things really start to get moving in 1603 when Francis Bacon is knighted by King James I of England as the father of the scientific method, although the same title is also given to Galileo, but not by King James I. And in Rome, an 18-year-old named Federico Sessi and a couple of his buddies establish the Academia di Lense, the Academy of the Lynx-Eyed, which was dedicated to the study of science through observations on the microscopic level, experimentation, and the scientific method. They chose the lynx for a mascot because of its excellent vision. Though not everyone shared this vision, Sessi's father was against the whole idea of the place. And who could blame him? Look at what the Spanish Inquisition was doing to free thinkers. The motto of the academy was Minima Cur Si Maxima Vis, or Take care of small things if you want to obtain the greatest results. Who could argue with that? The academy lasted about 50 years up until Sessi died mysteriously and it didn't resurge for another 200 years where it would be restructured and go on to include members like Albert Einstein, Enrico Fermi, and Werner Heisenberg. In October 1604, a major event in the heavens was most unwelcome by the Holy Roman Empire, a supernova, the birth of star SN 1604. And as we all know, at least by the church's standard, that the heavens are fixed and cannot be changed. But they had, again, and many people saw it with their own two eyes, one of whom was Johannes Kepler, who by now is fully immersed in astronomy. And the following year, after 40 attempts, he will mathematically compute the elliptical orbit of Mars, 
which was actually an idea he had in his early equations of the planet, but he just assumed that astronomers before him would have already tried an elliptical orbit instead of a circular one because it was such a simple solution. In any case, he cracks the mystery and concludes that all planets follow elliptical orbits and go faster or slower depending on their distance from the sun. His first law of planetary motion. But the heavens are just getting started because the following year, Halley's Comet makes another historic pass by Earth that inspires Thomas Harriot to also pursue astronomy. And we'll talk about Halley's Comet in just a little bit. 1608 and 1609 is really when all of this comes to pass in the Netherlands when the refracting telescope, or Dutch perspective glass for, quote, seeing things far away as if they were nearby, end quote, is invented by Hans Lippershey, or Zacharias Janssen, or Jacob Metius, all of whom claim to have invented it. And because claims for patents of similar devices had been made in the past, None of these guys gets an official patent. Though most historians seem to agree that Lippershey is the likely inventor. Yet the only prize he earns is reward money from the Dutch government for his accomplishment. He will posthumously be rewarded by us future folk with the naming of the Lippershey crater on the moon and the exoplanet Lipperhey in his honor. Jacob Metius had filed a patent for his telescopes two weeks after Hans Lippershey, and his device was actually a far superior design, and he offered to make them exclusively for the Dutch government in exchange for the patent. And, as is the case with most any patent approval, the process takes forever and Jacob Metius becomes convinced that the government was going to screw him over, and he refuses to let anyone else see his telescope, and he leaves instructions for all of his inventions to be destroyed upon his death so that no one could steal them. He, too, was denied a patent, but also given a monetary reward and a position working for the state's general. Zacharias Janssen's claim on the telescope is pretty weak as there is no evidence whatsoever of him making it. One very suspect fact working against or for his claim, depending on who you believe, is that for a period of time, Janssen lived next door to Hans Lippershey. So, it became the he said, he said about stealing the idea from his neighbor. Plus, Jansen was the third person to file for a patent. The only proof that is ever presented is that of hearsay, which often contradicted itself. Jansen's son claimed his father, Zacharias, invented the telescope in 1590 and built it in 1604. I'm sure you can guess how well that defense worked. Regardless, within the parameters of the same year, these fellas give us the telescope. And at the time, Galileo was traveling through Venice and he gets his hands on one of these refracting or light-bending telescopes and he finds it to be flawed and he fixes the design using convex and concave lenses on his first day back from his trip, though he will quickly return to Venice and share his new and improved Galilean telescope with the Doge Leonardo Donato in front of all these other prominent Venetian leaders. Galileo is given a raise, double his salary, and will be credited with its invention. And even his exceptional version of the telescope still had blurred images. But for the very first time, they were magnified by 30 times and enabled Galileo to make detailed sketches of the moon. 
though Thomas Harriet actually beats him to it by four months using his Dutch trunk or telescope. Scatter curiosity, Thomas Harriet is also credited with introducing the potato to Great Britain. Now, it's not fair of me to say that Galileo was a dick, but amongst his fellow astronomers, he kind of was. He would ask for referrals and acknowledgement regarding his successes and inventions from the scientific community, but was so much less willing to acquiesce. Case in point, once Galileo begins discovering everything with his telescope, he writes Kepler and asks for his thoughts on his book Starry Messenger and what he thought of his drawings of the moon and the four moons of Jupiter he discovered. Although the tone of the letter reads a lot like he's just writing Kepler to rub it in a little bit. But Kepler steps up and praises Galileo for his discoveries and techniques and what the telescope meant for the field of astronomy and optics in general. And he even goes so far as to publish Narito de Hova Selitibus in support of Galileo's findings. Yet Galileo never returns the favor to any of Kepler's writings, not even his Astronomia Nova about the supernova of 1604. And because Galileo opened the night sky to everyone, Thomas Harriet is observing sunspots in England and serving as astronomer and priest to both the Archduke Maximilian III and his successor, Archduke Leopold V. And both Galileo and Christoph Scheiner observe the phases of Venus independently. And then Galileo meets the Pope and is asked to join the Academy of the Lynxide which he accepts. In fact, at Galileo's induction ceremony, a guy named Giovanni Demisani, who was a member, coined the word telescope from the Greek tele for far and scoping meaning to look. After Galileo graciously donates one of his telescopes to the institution. It's a huge PR boost for Galileo, and the Academy was happy to publish his writings because it was a huge PR boost for them as well. The great Galileo was a member. But it won't humble him one bit. Remember in the last episode when I said that Kepler writes Galileo to congratulate him on his honors and asks for one of these telescopes and Galileo says no? What a dick, right? But such dickatry causes Kepler to roll up his sleeves and build his own telescope using convex object lenses and concave eyepieces, which ends up being a huge improvement on Galileo's design. So ha! These two knuckleheads would go on to disagree about things back and forth for the rest of their careers. A healthy rivalry for science. Galileo struggled to provide evidence proving that the Earth orbits the Sun and tried to make sense of the Copernican system. He eventually came around, no pun intended, but he disagreed with Johannes Kepler, who correctly asserted that the moon causes the tides. Galileo believed that the tides were more due to the moving caused by the rotation of the Earth, Which, if true, and it's not, there would only be one high tide a day instead of two. Yet, Galileo will dabble with pendulums long before Christian Huygens, and his theory of relativity, stating that there's no absolute motion or absolute rest, is the basics of Newton's laws of motions and Einstein's theory of relativity. So much so that Albert Einstein called Galileo the father of modern science. And Stephen Hawking agreed. Scattered curiosity, Galileo's right middle finger is on permanent exhibit at the Museo Galileo in Florence, Italy. Book your flight today. When Galileo finally did get on board with the Earth's position in the universe... He said, quote, 
The sun gives not only light, but also motion to all the planets that revolve around it. End quote. And that is what gets him into hot water with the Roman Catholic Church, who warns him not to defend the Copernican system and suspends printing of his book until it could be reformed, changing heliocentrism from fact to hypothesis and omitting arguments on behalf of Copernicanism. They eventually do allow him to release a censored version in 1620, but deep down, Galileo still held firm in what he knew to be true. And he wrote letters back and forth to Archduke Leopold V, much to the dismay of Christoph Scheiner, who urged Leopold not to share his work of sunspots with Galileo, only to be told by Leopold V that the telescope that he was holding was a gift from Galileo. Oops. Galileo writes Discorso del Flusso e Refluso del Mare about sunspots and continued to do his thing and tinker with and dabble in and discover more evidence for a heliocentric universe and he faced trial for suspicion of heresy and was put under house arrest for the remainder of his life and will write another book, Two New Sciences. Scattered Curiosity, another person arrested for heretical actions around this time? Kepler's mother, Katharina, who was accused of witchcraft and giving an evil brew to a woman named Ursula Rheingold. If you'll remember, witch trials were not uncommon at this time, and rumors were enough to jail her for 14 months before her son Johannes was able to come to her legal rescue and demanded proof of such witchery. Of which, of course, there was none. Bonus curiosity, Zacharias Jansen is also arrested around this time, but he actually committed a crime by having a device for counterfeiting coins, something that he'd actually been arrested for doing a few times prior while nomadically moving from city to city. Apparently, he'd grown up next to the Mint in Middleburg where his brother-in-law worked, so he was familiar with the place. Zacharias averts conviction because the bailiff working on the case was an accessory to the crime. Case dismissed. Then, a milestone in 1637 comes to us from an English spider and an English astronomer named William Gascoigne. And the two were working diligently one night when the spider, perhaps from exhaustion, had gotten a string of his web stuck between two lenses. And out of fear that his partner would be enraged and smush him, the spider fled. But William was instead delighted because the thin, hair-like web line helped him pinpoint objects he was observing in the sky. So then he put another hair between the lenses crossing the first. And these newly invented crosshairs on a telescopic lens enabled him to measure the moon and the planets with incredible accuracy. William Gascoigne is a hero. The spider faded into obscurity. And as you might imagine, this was a huge advance and improvement for everyone observing the night skies. Galileo dies in 1642, totally blind, at the ripe old age of 77. And you know, the weird thing that sticks out to me about all these genius guys we still talk about today is that they all lived pretty long lives for their respective eras. Aristotle lived to be 62. Leonardo da Vinci lived to be 67. Copernicus lived to be 70. And so all these brainy guys lived to be old men at a time in history with less knowledge of nutrients and water filtering or access to antibiotics. And our next couple geniuses followed suit living to be wise old men, and will one day have the most exciting space mission to date named for them. Christian Huygens, who will live to be 66, and the oldest of the pack, 
Giovanni Cassini, who lives to be 87 years old and truly follows in Galileo's footsteps by also dying blind. But in the 1650s, Giovanni Cassini is an Italian engineer, astronomer, astrologer, and mathematician who finds four moons of Saturn and notices the divided rings of the planet and is quickly put in charge of astronomy at the University of Bologna for the next 20 years. Meanwhile, in the Netherlands, Christian Huygens is making improvements to his Keplerian telescope, discovering centrifugal force, and also making observations of Saturn, and declares that Saturn has a, quote, thin, flat ring, nowhere touching, and inclined to the elliptic, end quote. He then uses his new telescope to discover Saturn's moon Titan. Huygens then points his lens to the volcanic areas of Mars, called Sartus Major, and uses his observation of the planet's movement and concluded the length of a day on Mars to be 24 and a half hours. And he was pretty close. He was only off by seven minutes. A Martian day is actually 24 hours and 37 minutes. And by the 1660s and 70s, Huygens is observing Mercury's transit past the sun, and Cassini is hired by the sun king, Louis XIV of France, to set up and be in charge of the Paris Observatory, where he figures out the rotational periods of Mars and Jupiter, discovered differential rotation in Jupiter's atmosphere, published his findings on the surface of Mars, and gets shared credit with Robert Hooke for finding Jupiter's red spot. He also uses his theories of longitude to correctly measure and map France for the very first time. And he revealed to the king that France was actually smaller than previously thought. And Louis joked that Cassini took more of his kingdom away than he had won through annexation. So, it stands to reason that the space probe that was launched to Saturn on October 15, 1997, be named Cassini Huygens. And it took seven years for the probe to get to Saturn after slingshotting past Earth, Venus twice, and Jupiter to get enough momentum to pass through the asteroid belt and become the first man-made satellite, Cassini, put into orbit around the planet in July 2004, and the first probe, Huygens, to land on a moon that wasn't our moon, Titan, in January 2005. The mission is scheduled to end in September of 2017 with an intentional crash of the satellite into the planet to avoid potential contamination of one of its possibly habitable moons. Remember the concern over the Moonlander bacteria? The main reason the mission has to end is that the orbiter can't be powered by solar panels because at that distance, the sunlight is too faint. So instead, it is powered by plutonium that creates electricity through radioactive decay. It takes 68 to 84 minutes for signals to go between Cassini and Earth. And there are some stunning images that you can go online and look at right now. You can see all of the moons that we named earlier. And check out my favorite image from Cassini called The Day the Earth Smiled. It's a gorgeous portrait of Saturn being dimly lit in a shadow with an eerie glow behind its rings. And in the glimmering distance, you see a bunch of its moons and also Earth, Venus, and Mars as colorful far-off dots. It is this mission that also gave us the evidence of the geyser-like ice plumes erupting from Enceladus, feeding Saturn's outermost E-ring. And you can see those images online as well. But back to the late 1660s, where we have a new genius on our hands, who also lived a long life to the age of 84, Sir Isaac Newton, who isn't actually a sir yet, but who has built the first usable reflecting telescope with mirrors. 
As was the case with the refracting telescopes, once it was invented, people were immediately trying to improve it. Enter Laurent Cassegrain, who invents a two-mirror design for a reflecting telescope to compete with Isaac's Newtonian reflector. Christian Huygens denounces the Cassegrain design in defense of Isaac Newton and ensures that Cassegrain would be lost to history. Until scattered curiosities and that the Cassegrain crater on the moon is named for him. Sorry, Christian. Newton and Huygens wouldn't meet each other for another 17 years, but would thereafter write each other about the laws of motion and the good old days when Huygens patented a pocket watch and Newton was using Kepler's laws to write his Principia Mathematica. Christian's last book, Cosmotheoros, is published three years after his death in 1698 and it talks about alien life on other worlds that he thought to be just like Earth. He professes that liquid water is necessary for life and that the state of water must differ on every planet according to the temperature. And he argued that the dark spots on Jupiter and Mars were evidence of water there. He also added that the Bible doesn't necessarily say that alien life doesn't exist, and he asked why else God would have made other planets at all. Surely not to just be pretty twinkles in the Earth's sky. He thought that God made the planets so far away from each other so it would remain that way. Too impossibly far to make contact with one another, but God hadn't counted on human beings growing so clever. So where did that leave Isaac Newton in 1698? Probably not where you'd think. He was busy prosecuting 28 people for counterfeiting English coins by going undercover in taverns to collect information and the coins themselves, which isn't surprising as the majority of papers he wrote were actually about alchemy a science that he was enamored with his entire life, and he even pursued it for a while. Now, Newton is a weird one. He's the English physicist, astronomer, mathematician that is credited with giving us calculus at the age of 22. Thanks a lot, buddy. He's also the guy that we associate with sitting under the apple tree when the apple hits him on the head and he discovers gravity. It most certainly didn't happen that way. He observed apples falling from the tree and concluded that it was drawn to the earth by some force. Scattered curiosity, Isaac Newton kept a list of all of his sins up until the age of 19, and one of them was, quote, threatening my father and mother Smith to burn them and the house over them. End quote. And he is rumored to have died a virgin. But I guess that's the price you pay when you are the scientific revolutionary whose laws of motion and gravitation will influence science for over the next 300 years. He studied Aristotle, Descartes, and Galileo and used Kepler's laws regarding the motion of the planets to figure out the trajectory of comets, equinoxes, the tides, and proved the heliocentric solar system was real. He built the reflecting telescope and put white light through a prism to show the spectrum, proved that the process can be reversed, gave us his theory of color in his books of colors and optics, and coined the word gravity from the Latin gravitas, meaning weight. He apparently had personal and political connections to the Whig Party in the United States and served on Cambridge's parliament as president of the Royal Society and was knighted by Queen Anne in 1705. The only other scientist to receive such an honor at the time? Sir Francis Bacon. But Isaac Newton didn't get all the English accolades of 1705. English astronomer Edmund Halley has just discovered the 75-year repricity 
of the time-traveling comet that will bear his name. Again, he discovered its repricity, not the comet itself. But because of his work with it, we can go back in historical records and know the precise dates our ancestors were looking at it. And for those of you that don't know, Halley's Comet is the only regular short-period comet that can be seen with the naked eye from Earth known to mankind. And it returns every 75 years or so and has been in the history books since 240 BCE, having been recorded by the Babylonians, Chinese, and medieval Europeans. Though they didn't know it was the same one returning, they just recorded it as seeing a comet. In 1705, Halley had adopted Newton's laws that were published after the comet Newton had discovered in 1681, and he correctly determined that it had gone around the sun and was able to calculate the effect of Saturn and Jupiter on the comet's trajectory. Edmund looked at historical records and found similarities in the comet seen in 1531 by Petrus Apianus and 1607 by Johannes Kepler and realized that it was the same dang comet. Comets had been seen as omens throughout most of history to this point, and if you match historical records, you'll find that Halley's Comet has been around to see some pretty giant conquests. In 1066, Halley's Comet was seen as a bad omen for Harold II of England, who was killed in the Battle of Hastings, but a good omen for the victor, William the Conqueror, when it appeared to be four times the size of Venus and 25% the brightness of the moon, as recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The saga of Genghis Khan holds that the appearance of Halley's Comet in 1222 inspired him to invade westward to Europe. And the 1456 flyby of the comet gave the Ottoman Empire the go-ahead to invade the Hungarian Kingdom. And a few facts about the comet itself. It was first thought to be a dirty snowball, but instead is more accurately described as a snowy dirt ball that's made of ammonia, carbon dioxide, dust, and water ice that follows an extremely elliptical orbit around the sun. At its closest, between the orbits of Mercury and Venus, and as far out as Pluto. And it is actually the first object, other than the planets, that was proved to orbit the sun traveling at an astonishing 157,838 miles per hour. It is estimated that the comet has been in orbit for 16 to 200,000 years and it gets smaller with every pass of the sun and will probably make its last appearance in about 20,000 years. Edmund Halley predicts the comet's return in 1758, but sadly dies 16 years before getting to see it. The comet was named for him the following year, 1759. And the next two appearances of Halley's Comet, 1835 and 1910, gives us perhaps my favorite scattered curiosity that I've shared with you yet. This is a great story. So, Mark Twain, author of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, was born in 1835, two weeks after the pass of Halley's Comet, and in his 1909 autobiography, he wrote, quote, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It's coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. It will be the greatest disappointment of my life if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. The Almighty has said, no doubt. Now here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together, they must go out together. End quote. He died at the age of 74, April 21st, 1910, the day after Halley's Comet reached its perihelion, when the object is the closest to the sun in its orbit, and it was one of the closest approaches that the comet has ever had to Earth, so close that the Earth passed through the comet's tail. And 
there is a 1985 film called The Adventures of Mark Twain that is based on the quote from his autobiography, which seemed a fitting year for the film because Halley's Comet returned in 1986 when I was a kid. I remember my dad wanted to see it. He woke me up at 4 a.m., and we drove out to a field to escape the lights of Chicago, which was 25 miles away. I have no recollection of having seen the comet that night, which, I just found out, was common for most comet gazers in 1986 because that particular pass of Halley's Comet is recorded as one of the least visible in 2,000 years because the Earth and the comet were on opposite sides of the sun in addition to increasing light pollution that hadn't existed 75 years prior. The only Earthlings that got even just an okay view of that passing with binoculars were in the Southern Hemisphere. The next time you can see Halley's Comet will be July 28, 2061. From the 1730s on, telescopes keep getting bigger and better. John Hadley improves upon the parabolic reflecting Newtonian telescope for the Royal Society, and in 1789, William Herschel finds my favorite moon, Enceladus, the very first time he uses his brand new 47-inch telescope, the biggest in the world at the time. And his son, John Herschel, who was also an inventor, chemist, astronomer, and photographer, named four moons of Uranus and seven of Saturn. He becomes one of the founders of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1820, and he sees the 1835 passing of Halley's Comet as well. And just to make sure that he outshined his father, John Herschel coins the term photography in 1839 is the first to use the words negative and positive in relationship to photography, translated Homer's The Iliad, and wrote entries in the Encyclopedia Britannica's 8th edition on the telescope and meteorology. In 1846, William LaSalle discovers Neptune's biggest moon, Triton, just 17 days after Neptune was discovered by another astronomer, John Galley, with the four-foot telescope that he'd built in Malta versus rainy England because there was far more visibility in Malta. He finds Hyperion of Saturn, and then three years after that, Ariel and Umbriel of Uranus. And when Queen Victoria was visiting Liverpool in 1851, William Lassell was the only local person that she wanted to meet. In 1876, an astronomer named Edward Emerson Barnard gets a 5-inch reflecting telescope and finds his first comet and his second and third the very next year, which was great news for him because at the time, Hulbert Harrington Warner was paying $200 for every finding of a new comet. And this dude found five total. A guy who never graduated from school, but was given an honorary degree from Vanderbilt and was the first to find a moon of Jupiter's, Almathea, since Galileo. He also, unbeknownst to him, discovered the spokes of Saturn, which make the perpendicular shadows of the rings. The Great Paris Exhibition of 1900 which was covered in our episode Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians, Part 2, also had the biggest refracting telescope of its time. Then, in 1904, the Mount Wilson Observatory is funded in L.A. County, California by the Carnegie Institution on the condition that it would allow public access. And Mount Wilson is home to the Hooker Telescope and the Snow Solar Telescope. It is at this facility where Edwin Hubble will use the Hooker telescope in 1920 to prove the Milky Way is just one of many galaxies and in 1929 will add that the universe stretches far beyond the Milky Way and is expanding. And his co-worker, Fritz Zwicky, will use the same telescope to discover dark matter the following year. And just another year after that, in August of 1931, 
Carl Jansky, the father of radio astronomy, discovers the radio waves coming from the Milky Way while he is working for the Bell Telephone Laboratories to figure out the best frequencies for communications. He built an antenna to analyze radio waves and he mounted it on some Ford Model T tires and recorded his findings for a few months and came up with three kinds of static. Thunderstorms that were far, thunderstorms that were close, and a third unknown source. And he worked on the problem for a year, at first thinking that it was coming from the sun. But as the sun moved, the sound didn't go exactly with it. The key was realizing that the signal was repeated every 23 hours and 56 minutes, which is the rotation of the Earth relative to the stars, not the sun. It was coming from the middle of the Milky Way galaxy in the direction of the Sagittarius constellation. A Jansky noise is named for him and is used to describe static from outer space. Today, you can book the telescope at Mount Wilson Observatory with 24 friends. You can get a half night for $900 or a full night for $1,700. I want to do this so bad. And while we're on the subject of the Milky Way, let's quickly go over the specs of our celestial neighborhood, starting with the name. It comes from its Latin lacteal, or milky circle, due to its disc-like shape and refers to the way that the galaxy looks from Earth, just a strip of light where singular stars are indistinguishable to the naked eye. Galileo was the first to make the strip of light into individual stars. And until the 1920s, many people thought that the Milky Way had all the stars in the universe. The Milky Way is a barred spiral galaxy with 100 to 400 billion stars and probably 100 billion planets. For comparison, the neighboring Andromeda galaxy has a trillion stars. Earth is 26,000 light years from the middle of the galaxy and our solar system is in the Orion arm of the spiral. The center of the galaxy is most likely a black hole which is 4.5 million times the mass of our sun. And it takes the Milky Way 240 million years to make one rotation from the Earth's position, which means that our sun has only gone around it 18 to 20 times in its entire life and only a little more than once since human beings first appeared on Earth. And we orbit the galactic center at 490,000 miles per hour, or... 0.073% the speed of light. And to get an idea of the size of our galaxy, if our solar system from the Sun to Neptune was the size of a quarter, the Milky Way would be the size of the United States. And here in the Milky Way, we are currently on course to merge with the Andromeda galaxy in three to four billion years. But because of the vast space between stars, there will most likely be zero collisions. How do we know all this stuff about the Milky Way? The Hubble Telescope, launched in 1990. The Hubble Space Telescope, or HST, is a low-orbiting telescope that has been in use for the past 27 years and has given us so many answers and even more questions through all of its observations, even though it started out as a complete disaster when it was initially launched because one of the mirrors was polished wrong and totally distorted all of the pictures. Astronauts had to go into space three years later and basically put glasses on the telescope so it could see more clearly. Luckily, it was designed to be worked on from time to time by astronauts and has been repaired or upgraded five times since it was put into orbit. And just a few months after putting the glasses on the Hubble Space Telescope, 
It took pictures of the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 crashing into Jupiter's southern hemisphere, which you can see too. Go online and look it up. The Hubble Space Telescope is so powerful, it could detect a match being lit on Pluto. Before HST, scientists thought that the universe was between 10 and 20 billion years old. But now, they estimate the age to be about 13.7 billion years. The Hubble telescope has seen black holes at the center of neighboring galaxies and begs the theory that black holes are a common center to most galaxies. In 2015, HST measured an aurora on Jupiter's moon Ganymede that suggested that it has a 60-mile-deep saltwater ocean under the 90-mile-thick ice surface. Scattered curiosity, the original estimated cost for the Hubble Space Telescope was $400 million, and that price was already up to $4.7 billion by the time it was launched and it collects 140 gigabytes of data per week and will continue to function until between 2030 and 2040. And I hope that scattered curiosities will be here too, 168 subjects later, helping you discover the wonders behind paper plates, why bread always falls butter side down, and how to rig a penny toss. The secret is... You don't flip the coin, but rather spin it on a table and call tails. Why? First, nobody ever calls tails. Everybody always calls heads first. And because the way that a penny is designed with the Lincoln Memorial on the back, it causes a spinning penny to land tail side up 80% of the time. Now go out there and swindle your friends. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show